You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 130 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Jessica Hardin, and with me today are Carla Goodwin and Blake Miller. Hello, Carla and Blake. Hey, Jessica. Hey there. Hey. <laughs> well, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners who are new to the program. As I said before, my name is Jessica Hardin. I live in South Carolina with my husband and two small boys. I have a master's in emerging infectious diseases and biohazardous threat agents from Georgetown, and I previously worked on a biosurveillance project that aimed to detect pandemics in their earliest stages so that we could avoid being in the mess that we are in today. Um, since then, I've dabbled in geopolitical forecasting and teaching art, and I am currently focusing most of my attention on attempting to homeschool my first grader and prevent my three-year-old from sauntering into my husband's office naked during uh, work Zoom calls. So <laughs> a little bit about me. I love it. I love it. Love it. Um, yeah, my name's Carla Godwin. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota um, with my two daughters. I have uh, degrees in Bible and English, master's degree in English, uh, undergrad in Bible. Um, let's see. I uh, started and ran a nonprofit called She Is Called for some time, ran that organization, and I'm currently working as a, an operations director at the Graves Foundation here in Minneapolis. So that is that's me. All right. Uh, my name is Blake Miller. I'm currently in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, I've got a master's degree uh, in divinity from Abilene Christian University, and I'm currently working as a hospital chaplain for a, uh, a large healthcare provider here in the upstate. Um, I'm here with my wife, and in my free time, I like to write, and I'm getting ready to publish for the first time uh, a novel on Amazon, hopefully. So. Wow, congratulations, Blake. That's Thank incredible. You. <laughs> That's super exciting. Yeah. Thank you, Thank you both so much for, for joining me today. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, just as a little introduction, so I have dealt with anxiety before, um, but I really kind of came to understand what a mental health struggle, like a real severe one, would look like recently. And it's kind of made me think about mental health in the U.S. before and during COVID and how churches interact. And so that's the topic of our conversation today. So a few weeks ago, I had the really unfortunate opportunity to grow in empathy for those who struggle severely with mental illness. I was in a car accident and suffered a concussion. And I had no idea, uh, but concussions can trigger the uh, like new onset or sudden severe worsening of depression and anxiety. And that is exactly what happened to me while my husband was away on a work trip and I was home alone with my boys. Um, and the very like the very nature of that struggle was just so isolating, even aside from the stigma that surrounds all things mental health. Like when you're in that deep of a pit, you just have no ability to reach out, even though it might help. I mean, it was just honestly, it was brutal. Um, if you gave me the choice between going through labor unmedicated or suffering through that week of severe depression, I would go for labor any day. I mean, labor is painful, but at least in my case, it's empowering and a really brutal tangle with depression. It just it robs your world of color. It makes you feel as though the very essence of you is kind of fainted away. And at the end of labor, you get a baby and to see all your loved ones. And, you know, the end of a bout of mental illness is likely to leave you with a mound of unfolded love, uh, laundry and loved ones that don't really get it, perhaps. Um, and, and you're glad that they don't get it. But, you know, it's, it's a really challenging thing to go through. So, yeah, that experience gave me so much more empathy for those who wrestle um, more severely than I do on a regular basis. Just just a real sense of how far outside the realm of, oh, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps or, you know, just tend your mind well that this ailment really is and other ailments like it are. Um, and I've also seen how the pandemic has impacted 
my friends and myself. I mean, it's been rough. I think all of us kind of sense how difficult it's been. I have one friend who's battling serious depression. My own anxiety is going sky high. And I have plenty of friends who have simply given up worrying about COVID because they feel like the mental health costs are just too high. Mm. And all the while, I've kind of noticed that while mental health isn't something, um, I've noticed for a while that like mental health is, it, it's just not something that we talk about openly in society and especially not in churches. Like down south, we have this, we have this uh, phrase, put on your Sunday best, meaning that you just literally put on your best clothes. And I think that regardless of how you view man's depravity, I think this kind of put your best foot forward pervades so much of church culture. Um, and it seems like a really tricky thing to tackle. You know, but given that that the pandemic has given so many more people a taste of what a mental health struggle feels like, I wonder, and I'm curious if this could lead to changes and maybe more understanding, more resources, and maybe best of all, more empathy for those who struggle and have struggled all along. So that's kind of my personal thought on it and experience. Goodness, thanks for that, Jessica. I think one of the things that you said um, that's resonating for me is just the idea that perhaps our sort of joint or collective experience with COVID and the anxiety and the uncertainty that's come with it could create more empathy um, for people who suffer chronically from from depression and anxiety and those kinds of things. Um, I think that f to me, like empathy, I, I gain true empathy when I can feel in my body uh, what someone else might be going through. And I think that that is, um, can be hard to come by. And sometimes it's through an, an, a circumstance in my body, in our bodies, that helps us develop that. So I think um, you're talking about the the car accident and the and COVID are, are really relevant. Um, personal ex uh, experience with um, mental illness, I would say, has has for me been mostly through being near people, quite near to people who who struggle with it. And and so my ex-spouse. Um, struggles regularly with depression and anxiety and is medicated for those things and is moving more and more after the divorce to more natural um, uh, ways of solving that, though he's still on medication as well. But um, I would say that that absolutely impacted the way that we were able to relate in marriage. Um, the ability to carry on open, intimate relationship is impacted by anxiety, by depression, by your ability to see the world around you as something that you want to engage with and something you feel hopeful about. Um, so, so I have deep experience from being married to someone who deals chronically with those issues. Um, and my best friend actually uh, is a survivor of, of childhood trauma and uh, deals with a lot of the repercussions of that in the body that I think we're gonna talk about a little bit more as we go forward, Jessica. Um, I know you, you've you listed some things from, from her experience that, that she's talked to me quite deeply about So I, in our outline. So I'm excited to go forward into those things, but she is, um, my rock and one of my sources in the world. And so as COVID has come along, it, it struck her at about the same time as a pretty deep um, embodied uh, depression and and she she isolated. Um, and so it has been really interesting to have someone with whom I've shared everything and she shared everything with me literally go into a space of isolation where even I wasn't welcome. Um, and to just kind of lose that that source of feedback in the world um, and to watch her struggle to try to come out of that isolation, knowing she was in it and also knowing not knowing how to come out even back, even to me. Um, so those moments of us just trying to kind of find time to sit together in the same space, uh, socially distanced, but in the same space to try to see if just proximity would help us, help her. And there have been moments that it really has um, and then moments that it hasn't. So so those would, I, I think, would be my 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 most firsthand. I, I myself, sometimes I'm like, I'm not sure that I'm fully honest with myself about my struggle with mental illness. I, I don't think that I have anything chronically. And also I can look back at my life and see moments of, of colorlessness, like you're describing, Jessica, that were ongoing for years. That now I think in retrospect, I would describe as depression. Um, and I think those were situational based on a sense of disconnection and lack of a, a, the availability of connection. Um, and and I think for me, what I've what I've come around to is coming to understand or or watching in myself for the availability of the full range of emotions. When I have 
the ability to experience a congruent emotion, <laughs> I feel like I'm emotionally healthy. So that doesn't mean that I'm always happy. It means that I can experience sadness when sadness is congruent to my situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it means that I can experience joy or happiness when happiness is congruent to my situation. And those are, for me, the ways that I kind of watch for my mental health, because there have mm-hmm. been years in my life where I didn't have access to a congruent emotion. Um, so I think that's that's it for me. For the most part, COVID has been uh, anxiety producing for sure. And that I have, you know, two kids at home trying to do I live in Minneapolis. And so we're completely distance learning again, for school and have been since March. Um, and that is I work full time. And so we're all in our, you know, 1000 square foot condo, uh, each of us on our device trying to do our thing. And I have a first grader. And so those are anxiety producing times for all of us. We've definitely had our moments of we're not making it, this is hard. Um, so, yeah. Thank you for that, Carla. That's really, that's really powerful. I appreciate it. Yeah. Wow, it sounds like we've we've uh, put together a sort of all-star team for, for <laughs> dealing with this topic because I would consider myself a, a third generation uh, sufferer and survivor of clinical uh, depression. I was diagnosed in my teenage years and I think I spent from about 10 to 21 uh, off and on dealing with depressive symptoms, uh, just like my mother and her mother dealt with uh, before me. And, uh, you know, what you guys are talking about, the the pictures you're painting, colorless though they are, uh, resonate with me as well. Just the idea that the world didn't make sense or my place in the world didn't make sense and and uh, that the wor- really a, a strong sense I always felt that the world would be better off without me, that I really credit my faith um, and getting professional help in tandem as as being something that could uh, get me over that. And I like to believe that I've I've kind of come to the other side of that and been on the other side of that for quite some time. Paradoxically, though, uh, I think that my own experience with depression made it harder for me to relate, at least initially, with other people who were dealing with it. Um, for instance, I dated a young woman in college who dealt with some depressive episodes herself and hers manifested themselves as I'm depressed and I can't even get out of bed in the morning. Um, whereas I was more of the, you know, the, the one thing I can do to feel valuable is to, to do what is expected of me. So I'm going to put clothes on and go to school and that sort of thing. And so when, when that ended up hurting her college career, I, I was, it was interesting to me to look back on it and think about how I wasn't there for her well and wasn't able to, to offer real empathy in those times and understanding because that didn't read like depression to me at the time. And so I've developed a, an understanding that the symptoms manifest very differently and the expression of depression is very different for different people. Um, like I said, I'm a chaplain, so my job involves going to uh, cancer institutes here in the upstate South Carolina and talking to people about uh, their uh, cancer diagnosis and the way their lives reflect that. And that deals, of course, with some depression and also deals with COVID. And it's been interesting for me to talk to people who are in these infusion clinics getting chemo pump- pumped into their bloodstream saying, you know, I have uh, terminal cancer and I'm getting poison as a treatment. So I don't really care about COVID right now. I've got, I've got plenty on my plate and don't have any room left to be worried about COVID or the people who it seems, uh, kind of seem to suffer from what I would term anxiety fatigue, where they tell me, you know, I spent a good two months trying to self-isolate and trying to do what I was told and all of that. And after a while, I just kind of got to the point where I didn't have the capacity or the bandwidth to keep doing that. Um, And that's been interesting for me to note that people seem to run out of whatever fuel or substance there is to feel that anxious about COVID. And they just sort of throw caution to the wind to a greater degree, which you might say um, has been happening in large scale in America, which puts Mm -hmm. us in the position that we find ourselves in now. That is really fascinating and really useful insight. And I think you, I think we do have a great little all-star team here to talk about this. This is really going to be an interesting discussion. Um, and yeah, I, I, so my background's in public health. And so for me, it's always interesting when people talk about the anxiety of needing to distance. And, and for me, it's like, oh, well, of course, like if there's this going on, you just, you do these things. And I think for those who have public health 
in their background, it doesn't feel anxiety provoking. It, it feels anxiety provoking to me when people are not doing it. <laughs> so mm. I've experienced the opposite where like, you know, someone is coming in for a hug and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> or my children are trying to run up to other children. And, and that will be like concerning because I know the, um, but it, yeah, yeah. I know that everyone kind of deals with it a little bit differently. Um, and I, I loved your comment about how um, feeling, um, how difficult it is to see what someone else is struggling when it looks different from yours. And I think that ties into what Carla was saying about, you know, having the feeling that is appropriate for the situation, like that your body is able to read the situation and you can interpret that. And I think we all have such different experiences and um, those experiences kind of shape our, our minds and our bodies and determine kind of how we handle um, stressors and triggers. So that's kind of a good uh, segue into the, I wanted to just kind of walk through where mental health was in the US before the COVID pandemic and then during the pandemic. So I've kind of prepared a little, um, a little bit to walk us through some of that data. And this pulls on a bunch of different sources and I will link to all of my sources. They'll be in the notes, uh, the show notes. So before the pandemic, one in five US adults, which is about 47 million people reported having a mental illness within the past year. And over 11 million had a serious mental illness. So mental illness influences some of our society's stickiest social problems from homelessness up to a third have severe mental illness and intergenerational poverty to recidivism rates and even a child's ability to achieve their full potential. So there are these things called adverse childhood experiences, which Carla, I think you mentioned your friend has experienced some of them, which include 10 categories of traumatic events that have been correlated with really negative outcomes, especially when you experience several of them. So it's a dose effect. The more of them you get, the more, more awful they are for you. So one in five Americans has had more than three of them. So these include things like having been physically or sexually abused, having uh, an incarcerated household member, having your mother be treated violently, especially witnessing it, um, having someone in the household with mental illness. And that last one affects nearly 20 affected nearly 20% of the study participants. And this was a very large study. And longitudinal studies have shown that ACEs are actually pretty common. And again, there is a dose effect. So the more of them that you have, the more you're likely to have just a whole host of negative outcomes. So I'm going to quote from an article I read that did a good job summarizing some of the complications you can have. So people with high ACE scores are more likely to be violent, to have more marriages, more broken bones, more drug prescriptions, more depression, and more autoimmune diseases. People with an ACE score of six or higher are at, are at risk of their lifespan being shortened by 20 years. So interestingly, even things like cancer and diabetes have been linked to higher ACE scores. And as you can imagine, like mental health plays a much more significant role in the ACEs beyond just having a household member with mental illness. So all of this to say that even without a pandemic, mental health and mental illness plays a huge role in the things that plague our society. Um, since the pandemic, census polling has shown that individuals who reported suffering anxiety and depression symptoms on an almost daily basis has steadily increased from, I think it was 34% in May, and then it went up to 40% in July. Even more concerning is 25% of those 18 to 24 years old reported having, having considered seriously suicide within the past 30 days before completing a CDC survey, which is just a really alarming and jarring um, thought. And then the hardest hit are young adults, Hispanic persons, black persons, essential workers, unpaid caregivers, and those receiving treatment for pre-existing psychiatric conditions. Um, also, women with children under age 18 are more likely to have poor mental health during the pandemic. Um, so, you know, these data are based on surveys, so obviously they're going to have limitations, but it's really clear that the pandemic is having an impact on mental well-being. I mean, those who are already struggling with mental illness, the pandemic just really complicated care, counseling, group therapy, other mental health services, it just became a lot harder to access because providers tried to figure out, they were trying to figure out how do you, how do you provide care when care so often means being face to face and interacting with someone and, and that is how care is delivered. Um, so 
given the clear importance of mental health and mental illness within our society, you know, even when we aren't in the midst of a super stressful pandemic where, Carla, as you noted, you're living in the same small space and doing life and doing everything from school to work with your children, everyone is doing this. Um, even when we're not in a pandemic, it's still such a critical thing. I kind of wanted to see how the church writ large handles mental illness in general, even without a pandemic. Uh, so I found one survey of a thousand Protestant pastors, and it found that mental illness remains a taboo and stigmatized ailment with churches and pastors, many of them not even feeling equipped with how to connect members with counseling services or even just with support in the community, um, much less having those resources within the church. And lest you think that this is an issue only with the Protestants, sources suggest that Catholic parishes also struggle similarly. So there was a 2019 article in U.S. Catholic that talked about the need to make parishes a place where someone with mental illness would be welcomed and supported much the same as someone with cancer would be. So the deacon interviewed argued that parishioners, they don't need to be psychiatrists to support those with mental illness just like you don't have to be an oncologist in order to go take someone to their chemo treatment. Although right now it sounds like no one gets to take them to their chemo treatment. <laughs> so Blake, we're grateful that you're there and giving them <laughs> their chemo treatments. Um, I appreciate so, that. <laughs> so um, when I set out to kind of find sources for this podcast, you know, I was, I was actually pretty surprised that given the importance of the issue, even during non-pandemic times, how little ink has been spilled about it in church circles since the pandemic began. I mean, there's there's not much. Secular sources have clearly sounded the alarm, like the pandemic is impacting mental health. But the conversation among churches and denominations, like it doesn't seem to be pivoting. And it doesn't seem to even be addressing the pre-existing pandemic challenges about mental health in an aggressive or even coherent fashion. So I before I kind of move on, um, I just wanted Blake and Carla, does that jive with your experience? Please tell me that I'm missing some like awesome fashion of Christian resources, or maybe I've been living in enclaves that are not not addressing it. Um, tell me that there's more out there. Or have you seen a similar thing in your own lives? Mm. Well, I think that it's easy for probably any person with um, a little bit of experience in the Christian church to think up uh, some of the the key phrases that you might hear when it comes to mental health in in terms of uh, the way it juxtaposes with faith. And the first one I'm thinking of is, you know, let go and let God. Um, and just this idea that, that Christians have uh, that, or that some Christians have, you might say, that mental illness isn't something we ought to believe we should experience or maybe even can experience if we are really living fully into our relationship with Christ or uh, you know if we are really seeking the the higher things and it's it's incredible to me to think about you know the way that 99% of people with a professing faith um, would not say that about physical illness and they understand very easily uh, that that physical illness is something that happens and that, you know, you can't completely reconcile that with faith or explain why, uh, you know, Christian practices or Christian faith should should mitigate against that. And yet the same is not true for mental illness. And I think, of course, that's an extension of the the overall stigma that mental illness has had throughout, you know, the world up until or progressively until basically the present day. Yeah. yeah. Blake, that's super, super interesting. I, I appreciate how you brought up, um, you know, that we're Christians tend to be willing to acknowledge uh, ailments of the body and somehow pretend that ailments of the mind are different. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that so we're going to, I think, talk a little bit maybe about the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Jessica, I saw it on your uh, yeah. passing on and I, I would like you to. I'm actually in the middle of reading it. And yeah. part of what I'm finding so interesting about that book is that um the argument that he's making, and I'm gonna, his name is rather hard to say, Vander Kolk is his name, his last name, but he he is arguing that actually trauma is in the body. It is actually not of the mind. It is in the body. It's a somatic experience. So it's when trauma happens, your body actually registers it as trauma. Your mind might try to shut it out. It might try to do the thing like let go and let God, right? 
but that turns into dissociation or turns into something else. Meanwhile, your body is actually continuing to suffer from the impacts of the trauma, which means it's staying hypervigilant, which means that it's not comfortable in relationship with people because they're not safe, which means that it's, you know, and these are all things that are happening. And so I think it's fascinating to me um, the way that the church tends to try to separate, continue to separate mind and body, the mind-body split, and try to tries to act like those two things are wholly separate, and that we can sort of set our minds on something higher and neglect or ignore what our body needs or wants or is suffering, and that somehow our mind is going to win because it's the thing that's closer to God. When what I what I guess I'm I would like to start arguing in church world is that actually our bodies are where we get to this point of of mutual existence with God, you know, where where we start to understand our I amness is is actually in our bodies mm. and in the somatic experience of existence. Um, and so so I think that I, I just have a, a fascination with the way that the church has continued to try to to try to do that, um, to separate those two things as if as if they're not impacting each other. I think you both have more religious studies than I do, but it reminds me a bit of the kind of of different trends that have seized the church over the years, kind of denying the body so that you might gain in holiness or um, just, yeah, kind of separating the mind and body um, over and over again. It's really interesting to see that continue. Just last night I was reading um, in The Body Keeps the Score, and it was talking, he was talking about how um, individuals like we are made for connection, and yet if you have someone who has had a kind of traumatic beginning um, or even has experienced a traumatic event and may have had a parent who um, didn't kind of equip them, and, and this isn't like sat down and equipped you with how to have the appropriate reactions to things, but just in the way that they interacted with you, perhaps you just weren't kind of wired in such a way that you're going to respond to, to traumas in the same way. It's resilience, honestly, that, that there are some things that individuals um, can be kind of taught, even as a young baby, that teach them resilience. And some people get it and some people don't really get it all that well. So he was talking mm. about how these individuals, um, they will grow up and they will be longing for connection. And they will find that connection, whether it is through illnesses, like you talked about somaticizing, so that, uh, that being where there is a physical problem, but it is stemming from, um, from a psychiatric complaint. And so seeking connection through illnesses or through, he even said lawsuits or uh, like physical altercations, that basically it's like the negative attention is better than no attention. And that like people will crave contact so much that, that, is, that that's what they'll end up. Um, and I just, again, I think it's really fascinating. And I even just to talk about my own experience a bit more, um, sorry, y'all, I'm giving you more of my own experience. But what I think is fascinating is that I feel much more comfortable discussing um, the fact that I was in a car accident and had this really awful bout um, of anxiety and depression. I feel much more comfortable talking about that because I can point to a physical trigger. But you know what? I've wrestled with anxiety, like like diagnosed anxiety, for a while. And yet it's much harder for me to kind of come out and talk about that. And I think it's, again, this the stigma that exists around it, even though like my body keeps the score and I deal with and experience um, those challenges. And I think my faith interacts with those and, and, and how I have to kind of think about what does it mean to surrender to Christ and what does it mean to kind of um, to to learn and grow um, alongside and, and face these things honestly and openly. And I, and I think it's challenging when churches are not able to kind of understand them and speak about them. Right. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention at least one uh, group that comes to my mind that uh, has really kind of taken head on uh, the, the intersection of mental or emotional issues uh, like this and faith, and the, that's Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm. Um, that group was started, you know, with a specific religious component, even a Christian component. And over time, um, it's become more sort of globalized into 
being about a higher power, but it definitely had its roots in the idea that um, a relationship with God was uh, a valuable tool in the fight against alcoholism, but also saying, you know, whatever works is what we're going to use to get over our, our, our issues with alcohol, be they medical interventions or, you know, social support or, um, you know, prayer, that sort of thing. And you see these days um, a group called Celebrate Recovery is almost kind of reclaiming uh, the church's role in that and taking a more overt Christian stance in terms of recovery groups. And it's it's interesting to think about um, what it tells us just about the social history of the church that that it kind of Alcoholics Anonymous began with the church. It almost seems like it needed to go away in order to survive. And only now are we realizing that it was doing uh, a great deal of, of work for us. In fact, I've read multiple articles that say uh, regular church services could probably borrow a thing or two from Alcoholics Anonymous meetings to become more effective. Interesting. That is really fascinating. I, yeah. I think it brings up um, the concept of community and uh, real like naked openness. Because I think that with AA, it's very like you have to go up and completely own it. Um, and that's a really fascinating thing. Huh. I will explore a little bit more about communities that are kind of tackling some of this. Um, guys, I feel like we've already gone into our reading, but we actually we haven't gone into our reading. So when I was digging in um, and looking at this, I found one article from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Council that was written way back at the beginning of the pandemic, where an MD and a pediatric psychiatrist um, had six really practical suggestions for what the church could do to support mental health throughout the pandemic. So I thought for our discussion, that we could just kind of walk through those. And then I'm hoping that we can keep throwing out some of these ideas and things that pop into your head um, as we're walking through those. So Carla, do you want to get us started with the first one? Yeah. So the first tip that they had was to combat isolation by moving as much of your church infrastructure and as many of your meetings as possible online. Um, they talked about having phone calls and then doing letters for people who may be less tech savvy. Um and I think I think this is interesting. So I, I work with a church here in Minneapolis doing their digital content. And it, it actually just so happened that I was helping them with Women's History Month content during March. I preached and then I was doing some just like training, you know, trainings and conversations around women's history in the church. And uh, mid-March, of course, COVID hit. And so all of that had to get moved online. So we moved that content online and then they were like, hey, would, would you consider staying on and just helping us with our digital content for the, for the duration of this? Right. And so I've been working with them on digital content. And and they they did really specifically move everything online immediately within the first two weeks the entire church service was videoed and and you know posted weekly um, and then they have the they have the sermon and everything and people interact in comments and then throughout the week we rerun that content you know so we'll we'll have like a contemplation day on Monday and we'll replay one of the songs or uh, the con the congregational prayer or whatever and then you know on Tuesday we'll do the kids piece again um, and and we'll do that we also started a podcast that runs that content and so we've given people multiple access points to that content if they want to sit and you know watch the video if they want to listen to it um, we'll do sermons and conversations through the podcasts as well as some short like um, our one of our pastors, Pastor Gia Star Brown, does soul sessions every day. She writes a like 300 word soul session every day. So we do some of those audio as well. So huh. we've got letters, we've got audio, we've got video, and all of that's been really great. But the other thing that they did that I've been just excited about um, is that they call they started a calling circle, and it just was they broke down the whole congregation into groups. They you know recruited volunteers to oversee a circle, um, and then that volunteer calls each person on that circle weekly, at least once a week, and just make sure that they're doing okay. And then Pastor Gia congregates the leaders once a week and makes sure they're doing okay. So um, so I've been really grateful for how First Covenant has has dealt with that. Um, yeah. I think that one of the challenges for us at First Cov has been, how do you actually have the kind of thing you were describing, Blake, that Alcoholics Anonymous does so well that most churches don't do that well, actually. Um, I think I think they really struggle with it. One of the churches I've worked with closely, Solomon's Porch, does this pretty well, and that is the conversational type um, services where people are actually having their own contribution to the content. They're able to show up with what's there for them and contribute it, um, which is somewhat different than the sort of confessional nature of of Alcoholics Anonymous. But it it is participatory, and um, 
I think that that's been a real struggle at First Cove through the digital content time has just been how do you actually get people to come and have a conversation to like show up online and be willing to just sit there and have like a connection time. Um, and that's been tricky. We've done it. Uh, we've attempted it um, through some listening sessions and some other things all online, but it's been really hard. So that's really interesting about how uh, challenging it is to create that type of back and forth, um, that conversation that cultivates community. Um, I've had the fortune, the great fortune of being involved in a couple um, or getting to hear about, it, I'd say, a couple just organizations that are doing some really think outside the boxy kind of things. And one of them is um, what are they called? Unlikely collaborators. And they hold, it started out as weekly meditation sessions, and then it's kind of switched. And it's it's kind of hard to describe. It's not weekly meditation, and it's not, um, it's it's kind of like a soul searching to some extent, but with two to 400 of your closest buddies. And <laughs> it is very, um, it's really fascinating. And they, it's a Zoom thing and they break you into different conversation rooms and you talk about um, the topic. And it's, it's really interesting how it actually, now it doesn't create a sense of community because it's different people. Um, so I've, I haven't, seeing the same people at every single one. I've always been in a different group. But I think that model is kind of fascinating for how you could potentially create, um, you know, because they bring everybody in and they kind of introduce it and you have a little conversation around it. And then they break everybody off into those smaller Zoom breakouts. Um, and I wonder if that could be just a practical consideration um, for how, how, to, um, how to let people connect and have conversations. Because I think you're right, even in um, even in normal times, I think churches struggle. Um, I think churches really struggle to create the sense of community, which is not rooted on, not rooted in like, hey, Carla and I are going to go get a cup of coffee and talk because we just happen to really have the same sense of fashion and we're interested in things. And I say fashion because Carla, I think we've talked before. Oh, yeah. Cool sounding sense of fashion. And <laughs> I would love to like, bestow her fashion knowledge upon me. I don't have that. But um, I but, think we'd have a blast regardless, Jessica. It would be great. <laughs> I agree. I agree. But, you know, the, a lot of churches struggle to take that creation of fellowship outside of, hey, we'll chat because we get along and take it into the realm of, hey, you know what? The thing that brings us together is the reason that we are here at, at a church. The the thing that we agree upon is our faith. And that's what ties us together. And we're going to get over all these other things and find the value in the fellowship um, beyond all these other things. And I think that, you know, even absent a pandemic, that's a challenge for churches. And then you add a pandemic in and it's, it's just really hard to try and do that. Um, so I, th I think so too, Jessica, I totally, totally hear that. And the one thing I wanted to say is part of what I think, when I've seen that work well, when I've seen churches do that well, what they've done is left left room for, for, for participation. What churches tend to do quite well is create content, right? They create a sermon, they create a story, they create, you know, and, and so there's content for people to take in. What we don't always do very well is actually create space for participation in mm. that where people can actually contribute their ideas, their thoughts, they can collaborate in building the content. Hmm. Um, we, we tend to involve people in acts of service or whatever, but not necessarily in the actual like creation of content. And I feel like there's a real participatory um, thing that people need to feel to feel connection. Like I did that thing. I talked about hmm. that with that person. And, and I think that the thing you were describing where there's a topic and then you break up into rooms. I just absolutely love that. I think that topics can help people engage in a way that they can't always, if it's just like, yeah. you know, tell me how you feel about, you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think jumping off of that, the, one of the churches that I've been a part of that really, I, I felt it the most was when we, um, we had Bible studies and we would just get together and study the Bible together, but it wasn't like we were following some book or nope. It was just, this is the chapter and we're going to work through the chapter together. And so we all kind of like messily struggled through this chapter together. And by the end, like you find kinship with the yeah. person that's not at all like you, that you wouldn't think is at all like you, but you find that like 
by some great miracle, your brains work the same way because they work out the problem the same way. And, and you find this connection with them that I, I think you wouldn't have found had you not had to kind of work your way through the, the creativity of that. Um, that actually makes I me think. love that. To mention this, um, have either of you heard of Peace Love? I don't think I have. Okay, so Peace Love is an organization um, that helps those with mental illness find peace of mind um, through creativity. So they, um, their founder, Jeff Spar, he's a great guy. Actually, when I went through that really rocky patch, he talked to me on the phone. It was really encouraging. Um, and he has, uh, he has obsessive compulsive disorder and um, he put together this organization and he's really had a chance to grow it since the pandemic because they've switched everything online and they are, um, they're just continuing to kind of expand. But what I loved is he described creativity as a place where you feel safe to drop your guard and be vulnerable. And I, I just thought that was such a really fantastic and fascinating description of creativity. And it made me think of church because, and at first you're like, wait, church creativity? But like, what is church if not a place where you're supposed to be able to drop your guard and be vulnerable and to sing and create worship with our mouth and to hear preached word and to let that instruction mingle with your own thoughts and softly seep into your hearts and transform your minds. Like that image of creativity, um, I just thought was a really beautiful image. And so, um, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Hmm. That sounds good. So, um, okay. Any other thoughts on, um, on that first point of combating? Oh, wait, I know something we should talk about. So initially everybody switched everything online. Um, let's talk for a minute about, is this still going on or are places you know, churches, a lot of churches here, I'll talk about my own area. Um, we have some churches that have opened all the way back up and they've actually really struggled to convince their congregants to wear masks during indoor services where they're singing. And then you have other churches that have pledged that they're gonna be closed until 2021 and they've caught flack for doing that. But in our own local community, you know, I think some of our lower numbers of spread have been due to several very large churches making the commitment to stay closed, which I think has helped our spread because they have some of the most like old south um blake you'll appreciate this they have like old southern sweet little old ladies that all get together <laughs> they, you know they like all congregate like i think i think um camden south carolina had for the longest time they just had the highest case numbers right and all of us kept going like what's happening in camden and then i spoke to my wonderful mother-in-law and she's like oh i know several people in camden and it just became like obvious that they must have a similar culture where People just get together and they visit and they drop by each other's houses. So I, I'm curious for for to hear from y'all what has changed because and initially everybody shut down and now we've kind of had this reopening and I'm wondering if that reopening you know is that creating challenges is that is that locking some people out of service uh, are some people shifting away from churches that are doing it online and how is it changing how is it how do you think it's changing. Well, I've definitely spoken to a lot of people in my work uh, who say, you know, our our church is completely online. A lot of them uh, say they're that the uh, pastor is is simulcasting things on Facebook or on YouTube. In fact, I spoke to one uh, woman today who said that her pastor said he's probably going to keep uh putting things out on YouTube, even though he wasn't doing that before this pandemic. And I think that's an interesting way to think about, you know, how how things are going to change. And we're probably going to have a more off online friendly uh, culture, both in the church and in the country at large. Um, and then I talk to people who say, you know, my church has uh, come back together uh, where, you know, putting a pew in between everybody and some people are wearing masks and some aren't. And so I'm still not going because I don't feel safe. Um, I've been to a church recently the past couple of weeks where they're doing the so the the pew, you know, in between thing. But I, I looked around and thought myself and my wife were about the only people I could find who were wearing masks other than maybe somebody who was uh, very visibly very elderly and, you know, needed to. And I thought it was a darn shame that yeah. uh, we were not leading the charge and saying, I don't care whether even it works. You know, if, if you have qualms about the research or if you think that there might be some kind of conspiracy involved, 
this this is the gift we can give our neighbor right. to to keep this at bay. And it's a it's been a shame to me to see um, that that's not happening. And so I, I, in the months uh, that we've been doing this, this this level of quarantine, I think we ha- are now at a complete spread everywhere from I, I know pastors who you know, are still not letting people come into their church. You know, we, we know about mega church pastors that are doing that up up to, you know, the John MacArthur's who are meeting their church together as an act of rebellion and defiance mm-hmm. and getting a lot of, of claps on the back and, and applause for that, which is really disheartening to see personally. I agree. I also find that disheartening. Um, and I also I wanted to touch on something that you had remarked about, because I think we're in a similar situation in our area where you'll go and there might be multiple services to try and reduce the number of people. And they might put a, a pew in between, but you might not see that many masks. And I've been concerned that the um, that because COVID has become so politicized, that that then becomes a divisive Thing within churches where it needn't be, that it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a divisive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I worry that some people are feeling sealed out of fellowship um, because they're living their lives differently than others. I mean, it's a very, it's a very strange time, um, I think, to, to be in ministry or trying to find a church. So, Blake, I would love if we could kind of I'll, I'll run through the next two points real quick. I think they're pretty straightforward. So his other point is help members care and support um, their community. So there's even some research suggesting that getting involved and supporting your community um, after a disaster is actually protective against people developing PTSD, which is pretty mm. fascinating. I think that that might have been a bit more, I think people probably the funny thing about a crisis that goes on for a long time is that it just doesn't feel like a crisis anymore. And I, I right. worry a little bit that this doesn't feel like a crisis. I think this probably feels just like a slow rolling, exhausting, Ugh, why is it not over yet? Um, so it's hard to see those crisis points. Um, and then his next point was provide practical help for situations that we know can trigger mental health concerns. So if someone loses a job, provide them with support. Um, and really just trying to bridge those gaps and prevent people from falling into a mental health crisis. So real quick, do you guys have any thoughts on those or anything to add for those points? Yeah, I I think it's interesting, the idea that um, helping to support your community could protect you from PTSD. I think, again, on the book, The Body Keeps the Score, one of the things that he notes about trauma is that it often is far worse if you feel disempowered. So if you're trapped or if you're unable to to help yourself. You may you may live through a traumatic experience, but if you're able to run away or if you're able to um, have some some ability to act on your amygdala, freeze or, or fight or flight, especially, um, that you that you actually have less trauma set into your body. But if you're trapped, if you're if you go into freeze, if you're not able to actually protect yourself or act on your own behalf, you actually suffer more from trauma. So it, it makes sense to me that the feeling of empowerment that you would gain from helping community members would contribute to to protecting your your own body from trauma. Um, so I, I appreciated that. I think it's that right. sense of agency that you you are having some agency over the situation. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Blake, anything to add? I think that kind of uh, nails it. And I think that that is something we can see in some of the outreach that I've been able to be a part of uh, with my church. Maybe not in this situation, but in, in homeless care and prison ministry, that sort of thing, um, that it helps form a person's uh, I guess you could say emotional and even spiritual imagination as mm. regards uh, the the their ownership of and relationship to uh, these events that happen to them that can seem um, very capricious and and very overpowering um, to be able to to move forward and to try and 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 work against it in some way I've I've noticed has a very powerful effect in helping people uh, cope with these these sort of un- unsavory realities. Mm, that's really, yeah. really beautiful. Can you um, lead us through the next two points? Sure, yeah. The next major point uh, that the author uh, offers is to uh, provide peer support. 
Um, and it says churches with a lay counseling program can provide them with the tools to encourage and uplift members who are unable to leave their homes. Now, personally, when I think about that, it sounds uh, on one hand marvelous. It, uh, it kind of sounds like that that uh, AA model that mm-hmm. we, we know about and have seen grow out of the church itself. But then I think about it on the other hand so much of my church experiences and it almost seems like it's it's getting uh more and more this way with the rise of mega churches and and multi-site churches that sort of thing is a very um like uh, i guess service oriented in in the sense of you go to church and it's something you receive and not something you take part in. Mm-hmm. So when I hear the idea of peer support and lay counseling and empowering individual church members or congregants to to offer counsel to each other, I almost kind of recoil and think, you know, do I know many congregants, fellow congregants that that would feel empowered to do that or feel well equipped enough to do that and i think about that idea of 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 uh putting one congregant in touch with another who who shares her mental health concerns and the other one says something like let go and let god or even says you know this is happening because you're not praying enough so on one hand i think this is a very valuable idea but i think that it's something you would really need to approach carefully and with um a strong idea for how you're going to equip uh, the congregants to do this and not just sort of leave them to their own devices and trust that their gut instincts are going to be useful in this sense. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I agree completely. Carla, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I just think, I think that's a really good point. And I think, um, I think, you know, Peer support matters, but it does, you're you're right. There's there's great risk of harm if someone doesn't understand um, what people are dealing with and what what the realities of trauma look like, you know, mm-hmm. um, or or even anxiety or anything. Um, yeah, and I think you you risk the trite responses that you're you're calling out. So right. I know at, at first cover we did a, a series throughout the summer um, called uh, the journey to freedom and it was a series on on race and um, on intersectionality particularly so so quite complex um, and one of the people on staff actually the children's and and uh, spiritual formation pastor is is just a super wise person who's done a lot of you know her own self-reflection and so she did these listening circles and um, she hosted them in groups of 10 or less and she facilitated them and and it was an invitation to um, come and say what you're feeling and to be listened to you know but she facilitated Mm. each of those quite carefully um, so that people could process their complex feelings around some of these topics with someone who knew how to do active listening and to to do it from you know a non-judgmental slash you know um, protective space and uh, I think those those resources can be hard to find and so if you have someone in your congregation who has those skills like actually actively engaging um, the people who have done their work around around what the, what it means you know so yeah um, like I said before you know I have been touched by this COVID pandemic in that um, I go into these cancer infusion clinics and used to be uh, before this lockdown happened, their family members were allowed to come in and sit with them. Um, and now they're not, you know, just to, to make sure there's nobody unnecessarily coming into contact. And it's actually been a bit of a blessing for me because family members were often really good at, at shutting down or kind of getting in the way of conversations and and helping people fully express themselves like i will ask a a woman with cancer you know how are you doing emotionally with this do you feel fear do you feel worry about this and her 40 year old son who doesn't want his 70 year old mother to die will say oh no she feels fine she's she's doing all right you know and i almost want to be like do you not hear yourself doing that, you know, and and what that shows or the people who start crying and their, you know, their friend or their family member can't seem to handle it um, and says, oh, let it out. You know, you got to do this. It's OK. It's going to be all right. And just sort of swamps them with words instead of allowing them to to process through that and get to the other side of it to where they are willing to to pick up the conversation where it left off. That can be um, a really 
painful experience. Uh, and I, I've talked to, to many people who say there's there's pretty much nobody in my life that that I don't edit how I really feel in some degree or in some way or another, because I know that I know what, you know, they will return to me. I know whether they can tolerate it if I told them how I was really doing. And again, I think that's where the one in five comes back to haunt us because it's mm-hmm. enough that it touches everybody. There's always someone in a room, almost always. Correct. But it's not the majority. And so I think it's hard for, and yet all of us pass through seasons of feeling those feelings. And yet the majority of us really don't know what to do with them. And so mm-hmm. many people I think have experienced um, challenges in their past and just given how high ACE scores can be that make it even harder for them, I think, to kind of rightly process and figure out what's going on in a situation that you do see that shutting down. I think that's where the church could play a really key role in educating um, and and helping their congregants understand how to rightly love and interact with each other and how to listen well. Right. Yeah. So to move forward, the next major point is uh, talking about the church assisting members in connecting with professional counseling and other mental health services in the cities and towns they serve. Um, And one of them says, you know, offer the pastors and other people on the church staff the technology they need to continue to serve and and do counseling at this time and also uh, update your church's list of mental health resources to identify people that are practicing in your city or town uh, and willing and able to see new clients or patients in this time and that sounds like obviously a no-brainer to me and I it, it it kind of makes me think you know are there churches who might have some of this stigma that they don't have like a, a phone book or a Rolodex, so to speak, of uh, these kinds of care providers that they could pass along to their congregants whenever they're asked or maybe even before they're asked. That sounds like something that that every church ought to be specializing in at this time. Yeah. Uh, I think that's also a great practical recommendation. His last point is that churches should remain a source of hope. And one of the things that I think um, struck me about that is just that in this ridiculously divisive, strange time that is 2020, where we have murder hornets and wildfires that blot out the sun and, and a pandemic that keeps all of our life shuttered in very strange ways, I think the church does have the potential and the power to help us remember um, that there is hope beyond that. And Blake, I think back to um, AA and how you know, it really held Christ and Christian faith up as that hope. And so I think hope is just a, a huge part um, of all of this. And so I, I think that's a very, it's a great way to kind of end this podcast is on a note of hope. So before we quickly run into passing on, do you guys have any thoughts on hope? Hmm. I've always been encouraged uh, doing what I do and getting to talk to people who have some of the worst diagnoses you could think about, um, have undergone profound invasive surgeries, have been getting chemotherapy for years on end, or who have just been told by their doctors, um, you need to go ahead and make the preparations for not seeing your daughter turn 16 or not seeing her graduate high school or not seeing her graduate college. And and just to have them tell me that their faith in God is sustaining them, that they are understanding that this this life is is a transition for them and that um, that they have a hope that is greater than just surviving up until the day that they don't want to anymore. And uh, it's been such a, a great uh just such food for my soul to know that there are people even in those places who can who can call themselves blessed and call themselves grateful um, for all of the good that God has done for them. And, and to know that there is really, truly no uh, through line, no uh, divider between the people who are experiencing that hope and the people who aren't other than the, the choice and the desire and the um, decision to seek it out and to live into it. Beautiful note to end on. I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I guess I would feel, I feel like I could, I want to complicate it somewhat that I don't know it, that it's as simple as the choice to or the choice not to. 
back to, you know, some people have had upbringings that allow them that choice and some, some haven't, you know? So, um, I think that there, there can be complexities to whether or not faith sustains or whether or not faith hurts actually. And I think that, that, that can be a doctrinal divide. It can be a trauma divide. It can be a lot of different things. Um, I guess what, what I find hope in, in this time is, is a sense of, uh, I, I I go back often to the idea of I am that I exist and and what we all have in common is that we exist and and we get that I am in in Christian context from from the voice of God in the burning bush right I am that I am mm-hmm. that I am that's what I am and we are all we exist as God exists and so I have a sense of like um, camaraderie with all through this idea of the I am and I and I try to to meditate on that actually daily when this kind of stuff gets out of control and and when I feel um, uh, unsure of what's next. And I, I, I think that I would love to see churches go back to something. I, I don't know that there's a back. I don't I don't know that that's real. But go but start to think about the, the basis of our camaraderie as humans mm, um, mm, and actually like invite us into that on a regular basis mm-hmm. and do it do it in somatic ways do it in in ways that like we could actually feel our connectedness one of the things I'm, I'm I know I keep talking about this book but truly it's one of the best books on this that I've ever read and and part of what he talks about is the idea of shared rhythms and I and he talks a lot about actually trauma survivors gaining um, healing through choir through singing with other people because it resets body rhythms. Their body gets to, to co-regulate with other bodies in the act of singing. And so there's so much of that that we do as ritual in the church already. And I think if we would let ourselves, I don't know, invite more of that forward, um, I think it could be an act of healing and hope that that would that would take us back into our bodies and then also connect us with the, the divine. Right. Carla, I appreciate you adding that wrinkle. And I, I if I if I was misunder or if I was unclear in the way that I uh, said anything, I appreciate you um, offering that clarification, because I do want to say I don't want to I don't want it to um, to. Uh, what's the word? I just don't want to say that uh, if if you're not feeling the hope right now, it's because you're choosing not to. What instead I'd like to say is that people in dire circumstances these days, uh, whether it's a diagnosis or, or another circumstance or a social situ- situation, are are choosing hope and they're seeing the benefit of it. And it's it's worth um, reaching out in that direction for. Yeah. So again, thank that. you for that. Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate that, Blake. And I think that um, I love hearing because you, you've described yourself as a third generation depression sufferer and you spend time with people who have every reason to be depressed and what you're saying is they're choosing to hope and that right. it feels it feels to me and how you're talking about it that that's doing something for the way you see your own experience in the world right right I think what i love about putting both of y'all's thoughts together on this is you know choosing hope and then carla i think also just the the beauty in how so many of the things that we already do in the church actually our research is bearing out quite therapeutic in terms of being able to soothe our souls and to regulate our bodies when our minds have been kind of tortured through the upbringing or, or trauma or whatever it may be. Um, and I just think that's a really fascinating and beautiful thought. So, um, and I also appreciate these podcasts because we can have those moments where we can go back and be like, wait, did you mean that? But moving into passing on, um, I just wanted to put out there, there's an article called Your Surge Capacity is Depleted and It's Why You Feel Awful. I think it's a pretty interesting read. And uh, it also has some helpful tips that are practical and it gets into things that can just kind of help you continue to get through days that feel a little bit groundhoggish um, in their rhythm. And then I'd also like to recommend, was it Vanderkolk? Is that it? Vander- yeah. Vessel Vanderkolk. Vanderkolk. Mm-hmm. Vanderkolk. Yep. Vessel Vanderkolk. Yep. yep. The body keeps the score. I mean, it's a very thorough, fascinating, and at times disturbing look into stress and trauma and how they impact the mind and body. I will provide a trigger warning that if you have any trauma in your background, just read it slow. Like just read it a couple pages at a time because there are definitely sections that you think, oh my goodness, this is so, it's, it's quite powerful and interesting, mm-hmm. fascinating. So those are mine. Blake, what about you? Yours? Uh, well, one of the um, 
opportunities mentioned in uh, the peer support section of the ERLC uh, article that we read was called the Grace Alliance. And so mentalhealthgracealliance.org is the website for that. And it offers uh, a free workbook and free other um, uh, work uh, sheets and other things for helping people uh, understand um, these trauma, traumatic experiences and talking through them. It's almost providing curricula for uh, for church, you know, groups to to investigate into these things. So it's, I think it's worth anybody's time to look into that. Anybody who's if you're looking at the body keeps the score, then you might want to check this out as well for maybe a more uh, grounded or, or hands on approach. Yeah, yeah I'm going to strongly second. Obviously, the body keeps the score. Um, it's brilliant. And I, I also with the with the trigger warning that Jessica gave. Um, yeah, I think that, but that said, my, my friend who has deep trauma um, has been reading it, read it before I did and gave it to me and asked me to read it. And one of the most touching gifts I've ever received in my life for my birthday this year, she she ripped a page out of this book that talked about healing through relationships and, and framed it. And that was because she had made a marginalia with my name right there, you know, and mm. um, so, the, so yeah, anyway, so even if you have trauma, the book could be quite, quite um, helpful in helping you understand what's happening in your body. Um, I, two other things I'd love to pass on and they're people who, and books who I, who I know and have worked with and would love to suggest, um, a friend of mine, Heather Nelson runs kessedwellness.com and it's actually founded it. She runs it in Denver and what they do is use underutilized space in churches primarily to do affordable mental health care. Um, they do also have a website and so that is worth looking at. And I think they do some online, uh, care right now for people, um, all licensed therapists on that. Um, and then my friend David Hosey, David Finnegan Hosey, he got married. Uh, David Finnegan Hosey has two books, and he um, has lived with uh, bipolar disorder and has spent some time on the psych ward and um, is writing regularly about Christianity and mental health. So he has a book called Christ on the Psych Ward, which is brilliant. Um, we did a podcast uh, a long time ago on my Holy Writ podcast um, to discuss that book and some books that informed his his writing of that. And then he had a book come out last year called Grace is a Pre-Existing Condition. Um, <laughs> and those are, he, he writes really beautifully about mental health and faith. So those are my passing ons. Thank you for those. I also wanted to point out that uh, the Christian Feminist Podcast episode on churches and COVID and also Invisible Women, I think, are somewhat connected to this. Invisible Women, because just the same way uh, that one in five is affected by uh, mental health, and yet it's something that we don't really talk about. Invisible Women is a great, um, it's a great book and podcast uh, about how data um, about women is often omitted from many things that are put together in our world. So I would recommend looking at those two episodes. Um, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at the Christian Feminist Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Carla Goodwin, Blake Miller, I'm Jessica Hardin. In two weeks, tune in, and then we'll discuss the high women. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.